0: This week on Hangar Talk, Jet takes a new turn.
1: And there's some talk about compensation for businesses under TFRs.
0: Also, VORs continue to go the way of the dodo. New records in Valdez in the stall contest. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's
1: do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right 130, final With
2: 130 final your hosts
0: Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, good to have you back. Glad to be back. Yeah, good to have you. Lots of stuff going on, lots of cool stuff, different stuff going on. So let's get right into it. But first, um, tell us if you would about our guest.
1: We have a special guest, Mark Palm from Samaritan Aviation, and he operates out of Papua, New Guinea. That's near Australia. Awesome. And uh, he does a a missionary-based humanitarian rescue work with some Cessna float planes, and he's a cool guy. He's going to tell us how he got involved in that and what other pilots can do if they want to follow his footsteps. Awesome. Very cool.
0: Okay, so let's get into it. Um, Stratos, uh, you shot this thing in Oshkosh. They made a big splash last year at the show.
1: I did remember taking pictures of that 714. Yeah, right? it's
0: um, it's a neat little single-engine jet um, that they were saying, hey, we're on the path to certification. We're doing great. Well, now they've taken a little bit of a turn. They think they're going to start with a kit build version
1: that's a real interesting way to go ian and the, the airplane did fly and it was very slick looking mm-hmm. and um god man how could you make a kit jet
0: i don't know of, i can't of, imagine of,
1: the, of this nature this is a pretty pretty nice sized jet yeah
0: you know? i mean this is not a uh well like um the sonics jet i mean this is not a sonics jet this no, is a, this a more a, like a citation or something jet. yeah i think probably what they're going to do is this whole well really i mean and i say it's it's not shady in any way. It's manufacturers have gotten really creative with the fifty-one percent rule. Uh-huh. If you're not familiar, basically the way it works is the FAA says to be an experimental amateur built, you have to you, the owner, has to build it fifty-one percent of the airplane.
1: Yes, of you your yourself, yeah. but you could have some coaching and yeah. mentorship and assistance.
0: Absolutely, and so um, factories have taken that to say essentially you come in and work in a factory in our factory with yeah. our tools. Yep. Right. And, uh, and We get look it done. over your shoulder. Yeah, exactly. Like
1: an owner-assisted annual. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh-huh. So they are doing hands-on, but the technology is a lot greater now. It's not like you're sitting there laying up fiberglass in your hangar and that sort of thing. I would not so. know how to do that. Nor yeah. would
1: I actually, be honest I would have trepidation about doing that to my own aircraft. I know yeah. people have been doing it for years. I, I know. get it. I know. You know? But I always say
0: be... I'm smart enough not to fly anything that I built.
1: <laughs> a lot of people say that, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. even build a model. but uh, <laughs> I've built a motorcycle uh, engine one one time I put, put together a motorcycle and uh, I left one piece out <laughs> and I wasn't sure what it was so I carried the piece over to the to the Suzuki store and I said hey I'm to rebuild what this. is this what is this and the <laughs> guy said you didn't start it up yet did you I said no uh yeah good because that was the oil pump gear oh no. <laughs> so, so now Dave T wouldn't build his own airplane I don't think
0: <laughs> That reminds me I did a home repair and I was like I was putting a new thermostat you know for the HVAC and I thought I can do this. This is easy. This is a DIY, right? And it says, you know, turn off power to the system. And I'm like, you don't need to turn off power. Oh, of course, I shorted it out. And uh, hottest weekend of the year, and uh, I needed a fuse, nobody had it, and so we sweat all weekend. And, oh yeah. And I vowed not to uh, work on any airplanes or cars after
1: that. <laughs> well, I can do oil changes and things like that, but yeah. I know where my limits are. Yeah. But now, if you so, if you want to build a seven fourteen Stratus jet, yeah. Now they're stretching it also. Yeah. About thirty inches. That's the, the latest hmm. on this. Okay. So and there's still
0: some design work to do before yeah. you can do it. But
1: it it looks like you can do that. So that's kind of, it is kind of neat. We'll see what happens with that, huh? Yeah.
0: So let's say you want to start a little bit smaller. A lot smaller. Um, A little bit slower, a little bit less complex. Just Aircraft, they build this really cool backcountry, real, you know, stud of an airplane. So they've come out with something a little easier even, the ultralight.
1: You and I were talking about this ahead of time. It's basically, it conforms to this, the 103 requirements, Mm -hmm. which are basically single person Ultralights,
0: yeah, the real ultralights,
1: and with a with a wing. This particular aircraft is a high wing, single occupant. There's like a roll cage around them to describe it to folks who can't see it on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but they can only go about sixty three miles an hour. Hmm. And um, so this the Just Aircraft people, they're out of South Carolina. I've actually flown to one of their backcountry airplanes yeah. with Dave Hirschman. Yeah. Oh, man, they have this cool strip. Have you been there?
0: I've seen it, yeah. It's on
1: the side of a mountain, yeah. and you land uphill. Yeah. It's very
0: crazy. Cool. It's very cool.
1: So uh, for four grand, you can get the engine, but the rest of the uh, ultralight, ha- the price hasn't yet been
0: released. Okay. So the engine I know they're putting in it, they, it's called a Polini Thor uh-huh. 250 from Italy. You get 37 horsepower. And uh, like you said, a little bit less than 4000 bucks. So it's funny. You go from the Stratos, which is I'm not sure that I would personally feel comfortable building it, to an ultralight, which is you got to fly this thing by yourself for the first time.
1: Right. I mean, how do you train for that? Well, here's the key that you, you and I were just chatting about a minute ago. You don't need a pilot certificate mm-hmm. for this. You don't need a medical. You don't need a third class. You don't need any kind of medical. And you realize you probably don't need training. The company
0: does recommend yes. highly that yes, you of get course, training. Yeah, right. I'm sure they do. Um, uh, yeah. And so, actually, you know, Tom Horn, who's one of our editors, if you listen to him talk about these stories, it's really, he's hilarious about it. But AOPA used to have an ultralight division and an ultralight magazine. And Uh um, this is like back in the 80s when the Uh ultralight movement started to be big. And they would get kits in here and build them, and then write about what it was like to build it. Uh
1: huh. Kind of the one, the hands-on.
0: Yeah. And then what it was like to fly it. And he said basically you just jump in this thing, and there's somebody with a radio. Uh huh. That's like, uh, you know, first you taxi, and then you taxi a little faster, and then you lift off and set down. and you right. Get a little higher, and and you just, uh, you know, you work your way up from there. So
1: that actually is what I did um, when I um, I restored an air Aircoot with my mechanic, mm-hmm. and um, and that is actually what I did was uh, first I did some taxi tests, and then I lifted off maybe a foot or two off. It was a turf mm-hmm. runway mm-hmm. and set it down and, you know, got some confidence in that and to make sure the airplane was good because it was totally rebuilt. Mm. And then, um, yeah, it was uh, one radio to the other. There was another air coupe pilot, uh, a guy named Richard, that was coaching me along and saying, okay, David, you lift off at this speed and, you know, that kind of thing. I got it going. And then uh, for my first ever grass strip, short strip takeoff was was in the air that had oh, wow. been rebuilt. Wow! And it was the first time it had flown in a while. And so it was a little scary, kind of like what you'd be doing in this one of three aircraft. Yeah.
0: So did you leave any parts off?
1: No. <laughs> oh, they were all on that Okay, one. good. Good.
0: <laughs> you got me there,
1: man. Good job. <laughs> no, that, that was uh, a sweet ride, that air I loved it.
0: That is cool. All right, let's move on. So some good news. Uh, we've talked about the TFRs based on President Trump's travel in uh, Florida, uh, down at Mar-a-Lago for the Palm Beach area, and then up at Bedminster in sort of central, north-central New Jersey in the summer. You know, we talked about trying to attack this from a kind of a regulatory side where we've worked with Secret Service and others to try and get some uh, relief. huh and uh, now we've attacked it more from the legislative side, and and the good news is that we're getting some traction there, and and has of others in the aviation industry to help compensate some of the businesses financially.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's a key thing because down in uh, down in Florida, for instance, in Lantana and P- Palm Beach County, that you know when President Trump goes down there, it really shuts down a lot of their training operation, mm-hmm. and they have a huge training operation down there, and so this is looking to compensate. You know, the, the business owners on the field, the flight training operators, as well as the mechanics, mm-hmm. you know, for the lost revenue for these weekends.
0: Yeah. So I think they've uh, they've said down in Palm Beach, uh, a lost a shutdown weekend will be 30,000 bucks in lost revenue each weekend. That's not chump change. No, it's not. And it goes and, up from there. Yeah. So I think I, I don't know. I, you'd have to look at the data. I, I think Trump might be traveling less in 2018. But I know in 2017, if you take uh, both Jersey and Florida, spent 84 days. In both of those locations, that's
1: a lot of TFR days, yeah. and that's a lot of downtime it for is. these businesses. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so this could be a good thing. I, I would, I'm looking forward to seeing if it, this can get pushed through in that bill.
0: Yeah, uh, moving on, VORs. Uh, We still use those occasionally. Well, wait,
1: wait. before we move on to VRS, do we want to let people know that he has shifted from, uh, Trump has shifted his vacationing from Florida to New Jersey, and so folks on the Upper East Coast, be aware of the TFRs. Just keep an eye out for that.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and actually um, the FAA has told us, asked us to to reach out to folks because uh, those violations are up. They are. I I didn't realize that. Yeah, and so if you're a member of AOPA, uh, we'll send you TFR alerts based on your geographic location. I do get those. I do too. I and love actually, that. Do you have the app? So uh, AOPA now has an app, and so you can get them on email and the app will push it, the notification to your phone, saying, "Hey man, there's a TFR alert." We'll I do get.
1: I do get that, and yeah. that's really helpful. Especially folks that probably know that we're up here at AOPA headquarters, you know, real near DC, mm-hmm. and we do get a lot of that because there's a lot of travel, presidential travel around the Northeast, yeah, just for different events. Yeah. So we do uh, pay attention to that. That's a great thing that you brought that up. It's a good room reminder. Yeah. Yep. So, okay.
0: Now, VORs. Can right on. VORs. All right. Let's do it. Um, so the VOR system, uh, you know, GPA, FAA has basically said GPS is going to be the primary means of navigation in the future. But they acknowledge that VORs need to exist at least as a as a minimum network, as a backup.
1: a so Sort of a safety fallback. Sure.
0: Yep. yep. And so as part of that, they have been decommissioning VORs over the last couple of years. The plan is to ultimately decommission 300 of these.
1: But there are way more than 300 to begin with. Yeah,
0: yeah, there are. Um, And so, so far, 23 of those 300s, almost 10%, Uh um, have been decommissioned. And um, FAA and AOPA were basically looking at these saying, okay, is this the right policy, and what are we going to need going forward? When your minimal
1: operational network needs to be still in place in case something happens with GPS, because there are... Times when the GPS system is being tested in different parts of the country. In fact, we get notums about that. Mm-hmm. In fact, we alert people to that via our stories on uh, uh, via ePilot and on the web, that kind of thing, as well as as email alert. Yeah. And so the minimum network. Um, I didn't realize that, that there was like a formula to this. Yeah. So you need to navigate to an airport within a hundred nautical miles of the nav aid mm-hmm. and shoot a VOR or an ILS approach there in the event of a GPS service outage.
0: Yeah. And so there's also all these other unintended consequences like HiWAS. The uh, Oh
1: I forgot about that. That's how you're getting your weather information a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah so HIWAS is broadcast over VORs. And um, I think we say that sixty VORs with HIWAS are targeted for decommissioning. And so that means there'd be sixty locations without HIWAS. So you gotta
1: get your 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 weather information somewhere and so mm-hmm. there's gotta be another another technique, another tool. Yeah.
0: Um, We're also concerned about how it's being communicated. I mean, I I would guess that for the vast majority of people who just heard this, this is the first they've heard about it, even though, you know, we've written stories about it and tried to uh, to keep HOTS up to date. But... Um, it's important that you don't, you know, one day you're flying along and it's like your VOR is just gone. And, you you know, you want to know ahead of time. You want to be able to provide input into how important that might be for that airport right. and that and, sort of thing. Right. And
1: you're right. That's, there's some good give and take with this, too. It's been proven that, you know, with some of our uh, initiatives that if the pilot squawked loud enough, you know, certain times the initiative doesn't happen yeah. or it gets modified. Yeah. Just as in A D, sometimes there's an alternate you know method of compliance. Yeah. So there there is a, a venue for for folks to weigh in and, and try to say, hey man, you know, in this area you didn't think about A, B, or C.
0: Yeah. So, you know, pilots should be active and very proactive on that. That's right. Hey, so it's May and that means Valdez, still competition up in Alaska. Ooh. Uh, so this is the super short Amazing short takeoff and landing competition that's been going on for years now up in up in Valdez the Valdez flying and air show. Um, this year it was May 11th through 13th, so we just missed the cutoff talking about it last show. But I want to talk about it because the stuff they're doing there it's just it's unbelievable. It's
1: crazy, Ian. I mean, I consider myself you know good if I'm landing and taking off and you know. <laughs> 500, 600, 800 feet, something like that. Yeah. Do you want me to let our podcast listeners know what the winning takeoff distance was?
0: Okay, so I would – first, I'm going to venture a guess. I know the answer, but let's say if I didn't – if I hadn't read this story, if I didn't know what was going on, I would say a record takeoff for – you know, they have different classes. Let's Mm -hmm. call it the modified sort of cub, Uh you know, um, the light tailwheel class. I would have guessed 50 feet.
1: Fifty feet would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because you can get in and out of a sandbar. You know, it's pretty much that's good precision. Yeah. And if you're and you're an instructor, if you're getting your student to land within a certain amount of distance, or you want them to touch down a certain spot. Yeah. I mean, I, you know that's good. Good give and take. Yeah. So how about Frank Knapp in a modified Piper Cub, eleven feet. Eleven. Now, now this is for feet. a takeoff though. Eleven, 11 feet. feet. Eleven feet. So, so basically, distance to a basketball hoop. Well, you're more or less. You're
0: like six feet tall. Yeah. And
1: I'm about six. I'm six feet tall. So shorter than us. put yeah, Together.
0: Yeah. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's like. I. I mean, I can't. I just. You can't even fathom that. No, that's I couldn't. There's no way I could do that. No, that's amazing. That's a takeoff. So obviously his his airplane's very highly modified. I mean he it's it's purpose built for this sort of competition, but it's and an airplane. He,
1: and he lives in Alaska, so I think he might have some practice.
0: Yeah, that's right. right. Um, some practical practice. Yeah, it's an airplane. I mean it's a cub. Uh, he's got this you know regular motor on it, and uh, but he stripped off a lot of the fabric from the fuselage, and uh, it. But it's just I mean it's amazing. It is eleven feet. So he set the record for the takeoff. He, by the way, he's. Last year, he set the record. The way they score this is total takeoff and landing. They take the shortest distances, total them, and that's your score. Right. Um, Last year, he won with a total score, total takeoff (laughs) and landing score, of 25 feet. That's incredible. It is incredible. So
1: landing and taking off within 25 feet.
0: Yeah. So this year he did score highest overall, but he didn't. He didn't break his record. Well, the conditions were different this yeah, year. Yeah, they were always. Yeah, wind and everything else. 33 feet this year was the winning distance.
1: Uh, I think that that's very respectable.
0: Yeah, I would say so. So that means he he landed in 22 feet, but the winning landing.
1: <laughs> I can't believe this. It man. is
0: amazing. So again, so this is also a record. Nine and a half feet.
1: That's wild. Nine and a half feet. <laughs> that couldn't do that. There is no <laughs> way in the universe uh, I could do that. I can't stop a motorcycle at nine and a half
0: feet. A bicycle at nine and a half feet. No, not even you know? a bike. I no. mean, oh, my God. It's amazing. Amazing. And so you got to go out and watch videos of this stuff because the way they do it, you know, our landings are – we're on the front side of the power curve. We're making nice, you know, three degree glide slopes and yeah. everything else. Now they have a totally different technique. They totally drag it in with power. Yeah, chop it. They're way behind the power yeah. the curve. I mean, this would be if this weren't a competition or the way you land on sandbars or whatever. This would be, you know, quote unquote dangerous. I suppose. You'd I mean, call
1: they're it. right on the feathered edge. The they Bob are Bob Hoover feathered, feathered edge. That's of the, right. Of the aircraft. They are.
0: Uh, but it's just, I mean, 9.5 It's just amazing. Amazing, it's stuff. cool to watch. Yeah.
1: And before we leave the subject, let's remind folks that we do have
0: a fly-in coming up mm-hmm. in
1: Missoula, Montana. Yeah. And there I think you were telling me earlier that there's going to be a stall demo.
0: Yes, that's right. So first fly-in of the year in Missoula. Coming up next month, um, so check out the website for that. But yeah, there will be a stole. It's not a competition, but they're going to demo kind of how it works, and guys are going to be doing this short takeoffs and landings. So I
1: saw some of that at uh, Air Venture, not last year but the year before. And it was so cool. Yeah, it was really really neat. And you know, the pilots are just having a good time with this, mm-hmm. and they're they're just so comp- you know passionate about that. And it's just neat to watch. It's a great spectator event. I really like it for that aspect.
0: Yeah, they're really savvy about. How they run it in terms of really quickly doing uh, the circuits and getting multiple people in the pattern at the same time. So yeah. you're not having like six minutes in between competitors. No, it's and constant. Stuff. Yeah.
1: Coming and going, coming and going. Yeah. And it's, it's really, yeah. and I think there's some good natured ribbing and jabbing, you know, yeah. among those pilots. Yeah. Um, but I think in the, in the long run that they, they really encourage each other.
0: Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it's good stuff. Very good. All right. So, top story, we want to talk about this, um, these doors off helicopter commercial flights. Now, this is uh, just, I think, a really interesting issue. Uh, You'll remember the accident that happened in New York City, let's call it, I don't know, maybe a month ago, where the A-Star went into the water, pilot deployed the floats, um, but he was unfortunately the only one to survive. And this, this operation came under scrutiny because they were offering at the time these sightseeing flights where the doors on the helicopter are open, and the riders were wearing a harness and could, like, dangle their feet off the edge. and Right. Know. The
1: passengers had a harness, and they were clipped into, like, a central point. Yeah.
0: And given instruction on how to cut themselves
1: out of the harness. Yeah. Which, in an emergency, you know, you kind of forget stuff. Yeah. Especially if you're disoriented. And uh, in that case, the helicopter hasn't landed. If I, uh, if I recall correctly, one of the emergency pontoon floats mm-hmm. didn't inflate properly, so yeah. it
0: tipped. It rolled. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, so really sad situation. So the FAA immediately put a stop to the doors off commercial flights. Yeah. Um, now that could
1: affect pe- uh, operations across the country, Grand Canyon oh, yeah. included. I yeah. Mean, think about that. A lot of people get in helicopters and they fly
0: in that special use of airspace near the Grand Canyon. Yeah. For that same kind of a deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it had far-reaching implications. So the FAA has has re-allowed it, but it's it's really just kind of interesting what's going on because they they've said okay, you can do doors off flights again, and you can wear harnesses but they have to be approved. Uh-huh. Well, there is no approved FAA harness. So it's like a
1: it's a one-off thing that you have to apply for. Yeah. Uh, with a letter of authorization? Yes. sort of like?
0: Yeah, basically you have to send the FAA a video of somebody I think it is getting out of the harness or cutting themselves loose from the harness or whatever how, whatever mechanism it's okay. going to be in a, you know, a couple of seconds or whatever the standard I gotcha. is. So and then they just sort of do these one-off approvals. So it, it'll be really interesting to see kind of what happens from here. But, um, you know, we were talking to uh, an operator. I don't want to talk to them because we didn't talk about them by name because we didn't say that we were, you know, we didn't get permission to mention their name. Mm-hmm. But I'll just say they run an operation or did with doors off and what they were having to do and doors off were kind of integral to their operation. Okay. And so they were actually having to do a set-down every time a passenger changed seats.
1: Oh, yeah, so they wouldn't fall
0: out. Yeah, essentially, because they couldn't, you know, and, and so— Allegedly. Yeah, yeah, and so because before oh. they had a harness on and were clipped in, they could move around, move around the cabin, the cabin and, right. and, you know, take turns going to the door. But now they had to actually do a set-down, which there's risk involved, obviously. Yes. Do a set-down and a pickup every time to change seats, and then they would just essentially loosen the seatbelt, and it's— um. That, there's no way that was safer. No, so.
1: no, and and just going from memory on the accident on um, in New York, mm-hmm. I, it also had something to do with one of the passengers turned around. Their um, harness got hooked onto. Part of the
0: helicopter's control mechanism, yeah, or the fuel—no, the fuel, no, fuel, the fuel shut off. That's yeah, it. yeah. So I know that was some speculation. I think the pilot was interviewed saying that he thinks maybe that's what happened. Yeah. So um, there's yeah. a lot to it. There is. There really is. So, so you yeah. think it's
1: safer to keep flying, or it makes more sense to keep flying rather than going up, going down, moving around, and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you look at it just like an airplane, you know, anytime you're doing a takeoff and landing, there's additional risk there. Well, you're closer to the to the ground.
1: Yeah. And that's where most accidents are during takeoff yeah. or Landing faces. Yeah,
0: phases, absolutely
1: gotcha yeah and helicoptering because you have a lot more experience than that than my measly two hours <laughs> but there's a uh, you know wind and conditions are a huge factor yeah as you know as well as weight yeah and uh, other parts of the environment so it could be really tricky at times maybe it's not a good spot to sit down
0: yeah I mean I I would have to look at the data to know for sure but my gut says that um, you know with with airplanes most of the accidents happen on takeoff and landing but they're not as severe and I would I would venture to say with helicopters, that's the same thing. I mean, what you're going to find is rollover accidents, yeah. um, contact with something on the ground, that sort of thing. But obviously, you know, with the blade spinning and everything else, there's always going to be an increased risk if that happens. So right, um, right. so yeah, as like a pilot, I would much rather have somebody in the back with a harness clipped in, changing seats, than me having to go set down somewhere, take off belts, change seats, rebelt to you know pick back up so,
1: gotcha so yeah. in this case so, so with the letter of authorization on the, on these helicopter doors off ops so you can't you can no longer use a knife to get out of the system and you can no longer be dependent on another person to remove it from you yeah well it be interesting to see what what folks come up with yeah for that the yeah. technology and that could spur technology and yeah. it could actually spur advances in yeah. this type of egress
0: yeah yeah absolutely All right. So, hey, uh, talking about out there operations. Oh, yeah. um, Good segue. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I was reaching a little. Tell me uh, about the the guests and because you talked to them and it's just a fascinating environment that they fly yeah, in. Yeah,
1: so Mark Palm uh, with Samaritan Aviation, he uh, operates out of Papua New Guinea and and the Sepik the River is like a 700-mile long river and the folks there just there's no way to get around unless uh, you're on basically a seaplane, a float plane. Mm-hmm. So he uses a float plane to evacuate people who are having medical uh, situations and things like that. And it's just, to me, it's fascinating. And he started out uh, as a a pilot and a mechanic and, and advocates for folks to follow in his footsteps to consider both of those realms as well.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Can't wait to hear it.
1: We have with us today on Hangar Talk, we have Mark Palm from Samaritan Aviation. And uh, Mark, you are doing a lot of outreach in New Guinea. Tell us a little bit about what the latest is for you guys in Papua New Guinea.
2: Yeah, David, good morning. It's great to be with you. I, um, you know, it was great talking to you a few years ago, and it's exciting to uh, be giving you an update. We're, we're actually bringing a new airplane over this summer. But in Papua New Guinea, most people don't realize that Papua New Guinea is the second largest island in the world. And in the area that we work in, uh, there's 600,000 people in one hospital. So we're going into this 700-mile river. We, we operate seaplanes, amphibious, that's the 206s. So we're operating in this very remote area where most of the people are three to five days away from the one hospital that's there. And so we're providing access and hope to, to all of these uh, people that live along uh, this large river. And uh, so it, it's exciting. Uh, since I spoke with you last, uh, we've added three additional pilots. Uh, we're bringing over, as I mentioned, a new airplane this in August of this year. And uh, we're just excited at the, uh, the ability that we've had to continue our work. You know, we're on call seven days a week as an, as an air ambulance life emergency life flights. Uh, we do medicine delivery to over 40 different aid posts along the river and also disaster relief responding to uh, flooding uh, issues. We even uh, responded to a volcano that erupted here a couple of months ago. Um, and so, yeah, we're working in this whole region, um, offering uh, service delivery to these 220,000 people living along the river there, and we're doing it all at no cost. And so we're just uh, really thankful for our partnerships here in America, those who are sponsoring us, and then also the PNG government government, uh, who is a partner as well. And helping us accomplish uh, the mission that we have in Papua New Guinea.
1: You guys, you guys have a lot going on. And first of all, thank you again, Mark, for joining us via Skype. I don't know if I, you know, introduced you via Skype earlier, but we're glad to have the technology available to us. The last time you and I talked, it was at AirVenture a couple of years ago. You had just gotten another Cessna 206 for your outreach at that time, and so you're telling me in a couple of years, you've already worn out another airplane. No, the interesting
2: thing is we brought our first airplane over in 2010, and at at the time we uh, were just a starting uh, organization. We purchased an older uh, 206 that already had close to 10,000 hours on the airframe, and we actually purchased it at a discount out of Hawaii and and did a refurbishment on it. But uh, because of the corrosive environment it was at in Hawaii, uh, a lot of corrosion started coming up in the airplane, and so... We actually uh, retired the plane this last summer. Uh, it just needed basically uh, the, the whole body needed to be gone through, um, and uh, so we we had that new airplane that you mentioned two years ago. We brought over, and so now uh, we need two airplanes uh, where we're at. This third airplane uh, that's coming over will actually allow us to have two airplanes uh, operating in PNG. We're excited because, like the one we brought over two years ago, only has uh, twenty five hundred hours on the airframe, and this new. Uh, 206 that we're bringing over this this year uh, only has about 2,100 hours on it on the airframe. So we've, we've really gone back and been able to pick these low-time 206s and do com- complete overhaul modifications to them. Um, and so we're excited to have two airplanes that we feel like will we'll be able to service uh, this area for many years to come.
1: So really, Mark, just to regroup. So you really, um, e- even when I spoke to you a couple of years ago at Air Venture, you mentioned that your outreach really did need two aircraft flyable at all times. And we talked a little bit about how one, uh, you know, would need to have certain maintenance uh, at definite, you know, intervals. And so this would allow you, I guess, to to keep two in the air at all time while you have yet a third that might be uh, going undergoing maintenance. Is that what we're talking about?
2: Yeah, well, we actually the the first aircraft we retired brought back to the states actually, and uh, so right right now we only have one operating in P and G, uh, and with the growth of the organization, the amount of hours that we're flying every year, and the you know one of the things that is so difficult over there, as you mentioned, maintenance and parts. You know, recently we had a an issue with a, an exhaust cracking, and the plane's down for two weeks while we we get new parts in from the states. And so it's really essential to keep our seven days a week during daylight hours when we fly. But to be able to respond at all of those times, we have to have two aircraft at all times to where if one is undergoing maintenance, we have another one that we can fly. And we have enough work to have both of them going. So it's yeah, it's really essential that we have two airplanes on the ground in 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 New Guinea uh, because of the downtime. And when you have a hundred hour inspection or annual inspection, those type of things, Uh, the planes down for maintenance. So we're excited to be bringing this new airplane. So it'll give us two in country in New Guinea. We retired the first one uh, that we brought over in 2010. Uh, So right now we have one in New Guinea. We're bringing a second one uh, this summer. And uh, we're excited to have two uh, freshly overhauled low-time airframed Tesla 206s that we feel will give us uh, the ability to serve this area effectively for the next Uh, for many years to come
1: cool cool and then just to refresh our podcast listeners here on hangar talk you got started in this uh outreach because um you you originally if i'm not mistaken were um you went to school to be an a and p and then you added on to that um you know your your pilot certificate because i think you told me a long time ago that you really wanted to do outreach and the missionary work and you thought that putting those two items together would put you in a good spot um am i remembering that correctly
2: yeah, you know, I um, I'm not sure how far we went down with my story before, but when I was uh, I'm a third generation aviator. My grandpa was was a pilot in World War II. My two of my uncles flew. My cousin currently is is a flight flies for the Air Force and for Delta, and so we have a long history of aviation in our family. And and then my dad was a minister, so uh, during high school, he ran a homeless mission up in, in Northern California. And I had a chance to help uh, people physically give them clothes, feed them, uh, pray with them as well. And then going down to Mexico in high school with my church youth group and building houses for people who didn't have uh, a house and, and having those, those things impact my life and, and just feeling, um, this call for my life as, as a Christian that I I was called to go into a remote area and share God's love in a tangible way. So for me personally, that's where my, uh, my whole journey started in this area. I'd always planned on being a military or commercial pilot, but as far as going over and working in a remote area, that kind of uh, moment, I had a moment in Mexico that really changed my life. And so, you know, for me, it started with flying, not, not the maintenance side. I actually wasn't the guy So that, you know, changed my engine in my Volkswagen on the weekends in high school and was part of shop. And I really didn't care for for maintenance side of things that much, to be honest, or I wasn't into mechanical stuff in high school. But I knew if I was going to work in a remote area, that I had to learn how to fix my own airplane. And so that's what I did. I went to I started flying actually at 19, started uh, mechanic school uh, at 20 and uh, kind of did them at the same time. And uh, then I also worked as a uh, a mechanic for five years here in the states up in uh, la and san diego uh, to gain the uh, experience i knew i would need to be in the field and be in a a very remote area kind of self-sufficient so those were all things i did in preparation it took a long time obviously uh, to get ready to to serve in this kind of a remote area and it served me very well as i was on on my own for the first five years uh, doing all the flights and all the maintenance course, Samaritan Aviation. And uh, if I hadn't done all that preparation beforehand, I, we, we could have never been successful uh, when we launched the operations in uh, this remote area in 2010. And so um, that's kind of how I, I got started with my background. Uh, and um, for all of us, you know, all of the pilots that we have now, we have uh, four pilots on staff now. And all of those pilots are pilots and aircraft mechanics. So that's that's a common theme for all of our pilots.
1: Well, I'm um, thinking about that and just following up on that a little bit, Mark, for the folks who might want to enter uh, this type of outreach, do you recommend that they would uh, pursue both their pilot certificate and a maintenance certificate to really give them all the tools in the tool belt to do something like this?
2: Well, for, I mean, for me personally, I think it, it, having that maintenance background obviously gives you a better understanding of, of what of uh, the just what's going on in the airplane. I think uh, there's different organizations that require different things and so it really depends on what country you're going to, I think. Um if you have a really good support uh, maintenance support base, uh you know, then it's it's not necessarily needed everywhere. Uh, and different organizations, uh, require different things. We require it in Papua New Guinea for all of our pilots, but it, if you're going to go with the tip, there's a lot of different organizations out there and some of them require it, some of them don't. So uh, I would just recommend that people do their research. Um, but I can tell you from experience that the more knowledge you have, the better you're going to be. So there you go. I highly encourage people to, uh, to get their maintenance, uh, licenses if, if at all possible.
1: Well, that, that makes sense to me, and it's just like we were, like I was saying a minute ago, is another tool in your tool belt, especially if you're in a remote area and you don't know what your support's going to be. But that leads me to another question, Mark. So what is it really like to participate in this type of humanitarian outreach in a remote environment and keeping in mind that you're a family man and uh, you brought your family with you? I mean, what is it like to work in and out of this environment, and what's it like for your family?
2: Yeah, those are two uh, very long, <laughs> very uh, good questions, uh, very different questions in some ways and, and uh, very intertwined in others. I think for me, uh, going to Papua New Guinea and kind of being all on, on my own, launching this, this uh, aviation work over there, there were so many things I had to think about because I was having to manage the aviation side, which, which is parts and, and paperwork and all of that, and then I was having to manage the flight side. And really figure out what where we were going to land, where we could land. Uh, there hadn't been a seaplane. Uh, there was no other seaplanes in Papua New Guinea when we went in. And so, trying to go into a lot of these places for the first time and try to figure out uh, where what was safe to land, where it wasn't safe to land on a river that rises and falls. It's you know to give people in America some perspective. It's basically the size the size of the Mississippi, this river that we work on. But it also rises and falls up to 20 feet in a three-day period based on flooding and, and things like that. And so every landing's different. Uh, sometimes you've got, you know, 100-foot trees floating down the river with roots sticking up. Other t- you know, you've got crocodiles. You've got fishing nets, people in canoes. Uh, and so uh, every time you dock the plane on the side of the river, it's different. There's no docks out there. Uh, to dock up against and so you're you're um, you're docking in between trees, and you're you're dealing with the the river bank rising and falling, and sometimes you've got a foot clearance uh, for your wing to, uh, for the river and bank, and other times you're you're shutting down in the middle of the river to do a river transfer because there's no way to to dock on the side of the river, so it's always changing. I think for for me that was the biggest challenge, and one of the biggest challenges our pilots faced is just the ever changing uh, work area. You know, you're not dealing with the same runway every time. Uh, whether it's wet or dry, you're dealing with a lot of different uh, scenarios. Um, There's places I used to land where it's all sand now. Sand has come down, filled it all in, and we can't even uh, operate in there anymore. So you're constantly surveying uh, areas of landing and checking out what's going on with the debris and uh, things like that. But talk about remote areas. You know, all of a sudden you're you're shipping in your fuel and 50-gallon drums how do you get your fuel into the airplane i mean you're, you're you're you don't have a fuel truck that you're calling and you're not going over to a fuel station uh, parts that take take a very long time so you're trying to make sure you have the parts that wear out uh, most most commonly on uh, the shelf you're dealing with funding issues because you're getting your we're a charity so all of our funding comes from the states from individuals and businesses and so uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that, that I was dealing with, and that we still deal with as an organization. And then you have your family on top of that. You bring them into this culture where you know you're learning a new language, uh, you're learning a whole new uh, culture from the USA. Uh, when I first arrived, my my youngest was four. I had a four, a five, and a seven-year-old, so two boys and a girl. And you know, we've lived over there almost eight years now. It's been amazing, amazing adventure for us. I. It's uh, it's difficult at times, you know. Uh, like you said, managing family. Our family is just very a part of it. My wife is really involved. Uh, she drives the ambulance. Uh, she she works with patients in the hospital that we bring in. Uh, she'll pick up medical supplies. My kids are involved now. The, my daughter's 16, and I got a 14 and a 12 year old now. So they're all very involved in what we do, and it's exciting for for me to have my kids involved. And I'll go on medicine deliveries and bring my kids with me, and they're there helping load the plane being able to see uh, the tangible impact that we're making on the people. And I think it's really given them a really great perspective of the world and to really uh, live a life of service and, and to, to give back to others and not just be so uh, inner-focused, but really be outer-focused. And I think my family taught me that as my parents ran the homeless mission, and I've really tried to teach my kids that as well. And I think they've had amazing experiences. I think there's there's a the sacrifices, too. You know, I've, I've missed – I've missed my grand my grandpa's funeral. I've I've missed weddings. My my wife's missed uh, family events and I think those are really the things probably that are, are the hardest for us. Of course you miss food, you know you miss In and Out Burger and you know the, the local pizza place that you like and you know, the Taco Bell, whatever it is, you know, the kids all have their favorite. But it's uh it's funny when you talk about you know, we will sit down as a family and every couple of months and just kind of Guys, you know, just really talk through with the kids, like what are you, what are you missing? You know, it always goes back to food. You know, so it's just uh, it's a funny thing with with uh, when you when you leave a country and then you start thinking about what do you really miss obviously family friends food always comes up so
1: but i bet there's i bet there's some cool food uh, that you guys are, are having out it you know in new guinea and some uh, some unusual dishes and i know you guys spend a lot of time with the locals and you know live amongst them and 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 do what you can to help them out so there's the, the flip side of that is that you're experiencing new things the kids are experiencing new things as well and um, and some of the food could be it could be a highlight over there. It might be there might be some food there that we don't have here.
2: Well, I will tell you, it's funny. We live on the ocean there, and we get yellowfin, fresh yellowfin tuna. If you ask my kid, what kids what their favorite dish in New Guinea is, it's, it's I do this, uh, I sear this yellowfin tuna, I have this special recipe and everything. Um, it's kind of a, a highlight for us. You know having smoked crocodile meat the the smoked fish of the locals how they do it over there with their local spices we have a uh, our p and g family that lives on an island kind of our adopted family there and so we we go out to the island every what well, once a month or so and um you know just live in the village with them and and uh that's that's another highlight just just the um how they cook it with coconut milk and all of the uh the local spices and how they do it it's just amazing you can't duplicate that. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely a highlight as well.
1: Man, I'm staring at a cup of yogurt over here and thinking that I wish that I was over in PNG with with you guys and your family. Now, I know that things are are tough over there. I mean, let's uh, no bones about it. You're using float planes because there're virtually no roads and very little electricity and really little or, or no Emergency medical care, and that's where you guys have really shined. And tell us a little bit about the the medicine delivery um, that you do, and also to highlight the podcast listeners' mark on how many folks you have really you have saved up to this point. I think it's a phenomenal uh, feather in your cap that you've helped so many people.
2: Yeah, you know, I um, it's a, it's amazing. We we also we, in Weywak where we live, um, the North Coast is where that one hospital is for this whole uh, province of six hundred thousand people. Uh, you know, 220,000 of those people live along this long, large river. So there's also a medical storehouse where all the medical supplies from the, the government, from lot of aid, uh, aid or organizations, and they come in, and they store these medicines in a storehouse there. And one of the challenges is there's, there's no way to get the medicines out to these remote aid posts. So if you're three days away from town, you have just as, as much of an issue getting medical supplies up to these remote areas as you do getting people from those remote areas to the one hospital. And so, a big part of what we do is deliver medical supplies to, to over 40 different aid posts along this river, and we, we've delivered 130,000 pounds now of medical supplies. Uh, another thing that we do this um, last year, we've, we've uh, vaccinated 2,500 kids in really remote areas, and so we'll go into these areas with the plane. They haven't had a doctor in there in uh, 15 years, some of these villages. Ninety-five percent of the babies under five have zero vaccinations, and so to be able to go in there Vaccinate them, do education with them. Um, we've also uh, do uh, midwifery training. So, you know, most of the, the babies are all born in the village as well. So, so working with the mothers in the village that are pregnant and those who are assisting those uh, births to uh, to give them uh, some information about how to have more uh, successful uh, deliveries. You know, infant, infant mortality rate is is some of the worst in the Asia Pacific Rim there in Papua New Guinea, and so trying to help. Mothers and, and educate them on, on how to uh, to successfully uh, deliver babies or know when to call the airplane in uh, for assistance uh, when they see the danger signs and so those are things uh, that we do as well but it, it's been amazing you know one of the one of the stories you know I like to tell is uh, you know right before we came in two thousand nine they had a cholera outbreak on the Ocepic River and they had three thousand people die um, from from this uh, disease and sickness and so since Samaritan has arrived. Uh, we have not had anything like that. We we had a cholera outbreak uh, one year, and we had 90 cases in three days. And we were able to get in quickly with medical supplies, with nurses. And uh, to be able to stop this outbreak, only three people died from that. So that's that's the kind of impact that we can have with the seaplane, to be able to get in quickly and respond to these emergencies. We are we, constantly dealing with outbreaks of whooping cough, with measles, uh, because of the lack of vaccinations. Um, and so we were able to respond quickly to those. Uh, we celebrated our thousandth flight last year, which was a big accomplishment for us. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, the numbers, the numbers are in the thousands of, of the lives that we've saved and impacted. Uh, we've done 800, uh, life flights, which are those emergency, uh, calls, uh, that we go out with people or uh, it's a life and death call. But as far as the amount of people that we've impacted, yeah, I don't even know if you could put a number on that and uh you know that's just a testament uh to all those people that have believed in the in the dream that we had and and uh, so faithfully supported us all these years. Those of us who are there we we still talk about this uh you know how we're the lucky ones, you know, we actually get to be there, we actually get to see these lives saved, uh touch these people, pray with them, uh, tell them about uh why we're there, give, you know, and uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus and that's really our goal as an organization. And so um, yeah, we're, we're just so blessed uh, that people uh, support the work that we do and allow us to be there.
1: Well, you guys do. Um, just to run down a little bit about what you all do, and, and actually if folks want to help you out, they can go to your website at samaviation.com. It's samaviation.com to hear about Samaritan Aviation. You guys do life flights. You have a hospital ministry, medicine delivery, disaster relief, community Health and development, and leadership, and um, discipleship training, and I'm just reading that right off of one of your web pages. I already know that you've uh, that you said that we had um, a thousand. You said a thousand uh, flights that we've had since you've been there. And, um that's that's pretty astounding I, and I know that you've saved people because I think you've documented before on your website how you've gotten you've rushed folks to the hospital like you talked to us uh, about a few minutes ago and you know there's a lot of life and death there and and, and even mark you mentioned uh that three three people died um at a, a recent outbreak and I know that it's quite an accomplishment that but that it wasn't more but even three is too much
2: yeah I mean the realities are are um you know, it, it's hard to put in perspective. If you can imagine, you know, uh, if you're uh, living in Los Angeles and the closest hospital was Dallas, Texas, you know, um, that's really what the people are dealing with. And so uh, it's, they're, the realities of life there are so difficult. And so when you have a breached birth or you have a, you know, a, a pregnancy uh, that uh, retained placenta, or you have a, a poisonous snake bite. Uh, tribal warfare is still something that happens frequently in the villages. Tuberculosis is a major issue over there. And so all of these sicknesses and just the basic sicknesses that we all deal with here, and and you uh, you're three days away from help. I mean, uh, it's a very hopeless, uh, a helpless uh, feeling uh, for the people. And so that's really where we're we're offering that access and hope to those people that don't have any other way to get help. And so um, we feel we really feel blessed to be part of that service delivery to these people because the reality is I've been in those villages and you realize if a plane doesn't come, you're not, you're not getting back for many, many days. And so um, that's just the reality of them. And um, you can imagine living in these villages, we'll pick up a patient, we'll bring them in and they've never seen the ocean, uh, never seen electricity, a, a, a car, a vehicle, those type of things. And just the um, getting scooped up with a seaplane. I mean, it's, ama- it's amazing. I still try to figure out what it would be like to to experience all those things at one time. And I still haven't quite ever, I feel like I've ever grasped it.
1: Yeah, that would be an unusual experience for someone who's not used to even the most basic things that we take for granted, such as electricity. Um, now you talked a little bit about some of the demands on on pilots and aircraft before when you were telling us about the river and the ever changing environment for a float plane pilot. Tell me a little bit more about about flight planning techniques, and because you know our audience is you know a lot of pilots here, and I'm just curious about flight planning techniques and things that go into you know, developing a, a mission, you know, you, if you have a, a mission that comes across on the radio or through other communication means, like, you know, how, t- can you take us through how you kind of decide where to go and when to go?
2: Yeah. You know, that's, that has been an interesting, uh, process. The whole, I, uh, Concept of flight planning, how that works, weather. You know, we don't have a weather reporting system. Some of the locations, a lot of the locations we go, we have no ability to talk to anyone to get a, a kind of on-the-ground weather update. So a lot of times, you're you're really relying on local knowledge. Uh, after just being there a while, you kind of get, you kind of know when there's a system and when it when it's just the morning fog that's on the river, uh, based on uh, an actual storm. Uh, there's a lot of that that goes in. Um, you know, you're constantly trying to check for water levels, which because even on the smaller rivers they'll drop to the point where we can't land, and so you're really you're relying on the villagers to give you a a weather update and a water update, and a lot of times they just need help, so they're going to give you the they're going to give you what they feel like you want to hear to get the plane to leave WIWAC and uh, come for the for the rescue flight, and so you're constantly trying to evaluate that. You know, the one thing that we always get are pilots that want to, hey, we, I'm a pilot, I'm let me come over and work, you know, I'd like to volunteer for a month, you know, or whatever. And um, the reality is, is that most of the the new pilots, you know, you're t- it's six to eight months uh, of training on in G before we allow people to fly the airplane. And uh, there's so much that goes into that you've got the, a, a different culture, a different language, If you can't communicate with the people on, uh, you know, just getting you off the off the bank, for example, you're between two trees. You're trying to get the plane turned before you start the engine. How does that even happen if you can't communicate with those people on the uh, on the river bank? And so there's a lot of things that pilots in America don't even think about um, that go into what we do. Uh, you know, we've had to come up with you know take pictures of our landing spots, uh, work on on um, you know setting up uh, diagrams for landing. Where are the where are the whirlpools in the river? Uh, where are the sandbars? You know, taking photos at low water, high water. Uh, there's there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into what we do, and then it, when it's changing all the time, you're constantly having to update that. And so, it's it's very overwhelming for all, for the new pilots when they come over and and um uh, and try to to uh, just look at you know you're you're with plan, you're already looking at a lot of different variables uh, once you come into land, and then you add a lot more variables in Papua New Guinea. Uh, based on the uh, the issues of debris in the water, the level of the water, like I said, fishing nets, cro- crocodiles, all of those things that uh, you wouldn't even think about normally, have to be taken into account. You know, we have no fuel out in the in the river either. So we're once we leave Weehawken, we have to get back to Weehawken, uh, the town that we live in. So fuel planning is a major issue uh, to make sure you don't uh, run low, have the contingency plans in place if there's weather. Where are you going to land if you if you have a bad weather uh, to wait out a storm or things like that, and making sure you always have enough fuel to get back. So that's uh, another issue.
1: Absolutely, it sounds like a, a, a much more thorough pre-flight than anything we're used to over here stateside. And like you said, the conditions are constantly changing. You don't have weather that you can rely on. And I was, I was curious, and I'm glad you answered the question about how you guys diagrammed out some of the docking spots and diagrammed out certain sections of the river to point out where, where would be a safe uh, area to land your float plate and, and also to take off again, which is another consideration as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have some river areas uh, that are one way in, one way out. Like you said, the, with the river rising and, and falling, there are certain areas of this river a 1,000 feet wide, and, and there are certain spots we land at that half of the, the river is, is, a, is a sandbar that's two feet high part of the year, and then the other part of the year, it's, it's covered over. You can't even see the sandbar. And so, yeah, it, it definitely affects where you can go, there's certain areas we can't even go into once the water hits a certain uh, level, certain lakes and things like that that come up and down during the wet and dry season. And so you have to keep all of that in into consideration. And a lot of those decisions you're making from the air because it's so remote, you're not ever getting in there on, on a canoe or a boat. Uh, so you're relying on, on local people, local villagers who know the area to give you guidance. You're relying on your experience and you're relying on a lot of low passes and low and flights uh, over the water to, to um, make sure you're you have all the information you need to make a good decision.
1: Right, and that's something that I, I got my seaplane rating a couple of years ago. And that's something that my instructors hammered into me, which is to to definitely do a, a low flight, you know, low a low pass rather, and assess the situation before you ever uh, think about touching down. Hey, um, I know you spent a lot of time with us today on the podcast. We're almost done, and you've got a lot going on. A couple of quick questions for you, Mark, before we, we wrap it up. I want to remind people again that SamAviation.com is how they can Find your website, get in touch with you, donate to the program if they so wish. But now thinking about how you started and a little bit about, about the love for aviation and the love for your mission, you know, how do you reckon other people could get involved in this type of work?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of different organizations doing it. In- flying a variety of aircraft around the world. Um, there's an organization that we're all members of. It's, it's called uh, the international association of mission aviation. Uh, you can go to their website at I Uh, that's I And, uh, if there there'll be a list of agencies that do this work around the world. There's also a list of resources for schools that, uh, offer training, whether it's maintenance or flight as well. So I would recommend people go to that website and, uh, learn more about what the different agencies are doing and then kind of go from there. That's a great resource for people that are trying to to figure out what, where people are actually working, what kind of aircrafts uh, different organizations are flying and how they can get uh, the training that they need and get in contact with people that can answer the questions that they have.
1: Gotcha. Now um, I know you come stateside every so often to, uh, to, to visit with family and donors and things like that. And maybe, you know, get the aircraft um, worked on um, or, get another aircraft as as we saw when you were in air venture um tell us a little bit about you know can, can any folks can folks see you guys stateside in the near future i know a while back you did um do a bunch of stops at other cities and i'm not trying to put you on the spot but people might want to say hello and shake your hand
2: yeah you know we'll, we uh we will have a a booth at air venture uh, this summer at the seaplane base um, we're also right now. I am actually stateside. Uh, I'll be doing uh, some some events with our brand new airplane. It's actually in paint shop right now up in Seattle, and uh, we're hoping to have it down here uh, in San Diego, um, Los Angeles, Northern California, Phoenix, uh, different couple different locations in Arizona as well. Uh, so kind of on the western side, we'll be doing several events in uh, the month of May and early June. So really excited uh, to meet people. Uh, from there, and then we'll also have a, a lot of a staff out at uh, at AirVenture, the seaplane base, this summer, uh, with the booth as well. And so we'd love to, to to meet people, tell tell stories, and and share more of. Of the work that we're doing over uh, in Papua New Guinea.
1: Cool deal. Now I should have asked you this before before I got the lineup of where you're going to go in your schedule. But I should have asked you this, and it's been on my mind. What is the? Uh, and forgive me for asking now, but I, I got to know. So what's the scariest thing that you have faced since you've been over in PNG?
2: <laughs> oh man, scariest thing. I'm, that's a very good, a very good question. I think, you know, I, I think for me uh, personally, the going over being kind of being the, the pioneer as you, uh, would be a, probably a good word and going into all of these places. Uh, we land at 65 different well spots now uh, along the river and being the first one to go in there and trying to, to make those decisions, um, from the air. Uh, I didn't have nearly as much experience, to be honest, as we require people, uh, now that come over, uh, uh, we've learned a lot. And I think uh, for me, there was the pressure, of, of knowing that uh, these people that all these donors had given this airplane and it had been supporting us and they'd put that responsibility in my hand, knowing I was by myself. I had no, no, uh, help. If, if something bad happened, I was relying on other agencies to come help me out. Um, being in remote areas where, you know, satellite phone was your only option. And I think for me, the scariest thing was the first year of flying in New Guinea and learning on the job, uh, where to land, uh, learning the culture, language, all of those things, and knowing that uh, you know people had, had trusted me to make wise decisions in an area that uh, really hadn't been uh, landed in before, and I think that to me was uh, was a daily uh, fear that I had, or it kept me uh, make, you know really kept me on my toes, which is good. Um, I think you know there's all of us who have flown in those kind of environments have had those moments where the trees are sure a lot closer than they, you know, than they should be, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, especially when you're going to the places for the first time and having to make those decisions from there. And I think yeah, I've had a few of those situations, but uh, the, the training we do beforehand is really valuable and, and it's really kind of prepares you for those moments and it helps you to make those wise decisions, you know, so you don't have a lot of those over there. I think, I've had some really close calls uh, getting off of a bank of a river. where there's, you're in between two coconut trees and and the, you're trying to get the plane pulled pulled out, and the river's coming, the currents coming one way, the winds blowing the other. Uh, you've got debris, you've got lots of people, you know. when I land, there's 100 people all run right up to the airplane, and so you're trying to make sure nobody's uh, touching anything they shouldn't, and you're trying to communicate in another language on how they need to turn the plane and push you out. And, Anyway, there's a lot that goes on to every time, every flight. And uh, so there's, there's always been those moments, but thankfully, you know, the actual, uh, most of my scary flying, I, I, uh, I got through uh, before I ever went to New Guinea on that 500 hour to 600 hour range where uh, I had some, some incident, not incidences, but you know, those scary moments here in America and in Alaska. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got through most of those, those flights. <laughs> thankfully before I ever got to New Guinea and uh, the flights over there, have been more of a decision-making, you know, is there a a sandbar that's six inches below the surface, is there a tree that's there that I'm not seeing, Uh, is there debris that I'm going to hit, you know, can I get back out of this area, Uh, you've got a patient that's, you know, dying down there, you can see him in a canoe, I'm going into a place I've never landed, can I get, safely uh, operate this plane in and back out, uh, and save that person's life, knowing that if you can't get in, that person is going to die but those are the kind of pressures that you don't, you can't train for either. You know, I would say that would be, uh, the pressure that, uh, that, uh, we have and trying to separate that life down there with the fact that if you mess it up, uh, all the other 200,000 people along the river, aren't going to have an airplane and, and, uh, and the organization uh, isn't going to succeed. So I think those, those, those type of, uh, of pressures, you can't really ever train anyone for it. And, um, we, we prepare our pilots the best we can for those situations. Uh, but, yeah, I think if you were if you were to ask me that, those are probably the more high-stress, critical decisions that we make on every flight.
1: Well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but that is enlightening to know um, about that. And in the back of your mind, you're correct if uh – You know, one false move and 220 some odd thousand people don't really have a a medical evacuation option and uh, they won't be able to get their medicine or get to the hospital. So that's a lot riding on your shoulders, uh, Mark, and also the folks that work with you at SAM Aviation. So I'm going to let our podcast listeners know one more time, SAMAviation.com. They could uh, catch up to you guys. They could sign up for the newsletter and they could help donate to the cause and um, I was going to ask you if there's anything I didn't ask you. And we had a great podcast interview here for, for hangar Talk via Skype. And if there's anything I didn't ask you that you want to get the word out, now be a good time to let our folks know.
2: You know, one thing uh, funding-wise, we have a Fuel for Life uh, program for $200. We estimate it takes uh, $200 an hour to operate uh, for fuel. So we have a Fuel for Life if people want to help support flights. Uh, we also look at, are looking for m- monthly donations uh, donor partners. We also are we're trying to raise the final $35,000 to ship this new airplane to PNG and get it reassembled and flying over there in uh, the next couple months. And so that's if people want to uh, partner with us. Uh, the other thing is just the, the, just a huge uh, thanks to all the partners, the donors, the board members of Samaritan Aviation, and to our staff. You know, we have an amazing staff of dedicated people that are are just uh, really. Uh, dedicated to serving others, dedicated to being in the hands and feet of Jesus to the people of Papua New Guinea and are giving their lives to serve uh, those people that have no other access or hope uh, without us being there. And so we're we're thankful for them. We're also thankful for all the other organizations doing amazing things around the world uh, with airplanes and uh, all of the things we have been able to learn from them, from them over the years. Uh, so thankful for their example. Uh, and uh, the the example they set in safety and and piloting and so do, we're just we're just blessed to be part of, of of a lot of different people doing amazing things around the world.
1: Awesome deal and then you told us uh, that website for the for the uh, International Association of uh, of Missionary Aviators is uh, i a m a org. so we'll get the word out for that and we'll also remind people uh, that Samaritan Aviation is at samaviation.com and they could look for you uh, on the West Coast in the next couple of months, or they could find you virtually uh, via online, or maybe uh, stop by the seaplane base and, and shake a hand and check out the new airplane hopefully this July, right? Yeah, so the airplane
2: won't be at, uh, at the seaplane base. We're hoping to have it in a container all, all already on its way to PNG, but we'll have a booth. Our staff will be there. And also you can go to, to our Facebook page. We'll have a lot of it. Take that every couple of days with updates of current flights going on, uh, events that are happening, uh, where we'll be with the with the new airplane. So you can follow us along there. We're also at Instagram, Samaritan Aviation. So there's lots of ways, and uh, and if people want to connect us or people want us to come speak at their group or event, please uh, go to samaviation.com and and contact us and let us know. We're happy to uh, come share the stories um, of what we're doing over. over
1: All right. Well, we want to say thank you very much for joining us on Hangar Talk today. And uh, we wish you the best of luck. I hope to see you in person at the seaplane base at uh, AirVenture in July. Thanks again for joining us on Hangar Talk.
2: Thank you, David. Appreciate your time.
0: All right, David. Thanks for uh, talking to him. I just, uh, you know, the guy's just fascinating. It's really cool to hear too about bringing his family into that type of yeah, environment. Yeah. And, it
1: was great to have yeah. Mark Palm uh, with us and his family is a big part of it. And also uh, should mention it was via Skype and uh, Mark was in the U.S. Uh, modifying uh, one of the Cessnas that he's uh, preparing to take back overseas. So yeah, his family is a big part of it. And uh, that operation has, has really ramped up in the past couple of years. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen.
1: And I'm David Toulis. You can find us at AOPA.org slash Talk. And we're on iTunes or on the Sporty's Takeoff
0: app. All right. Thanks. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.